Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a topic that, well, it connects with Indian country on a variety of levels. It is something that is especially powerful. It can make a difference for you and for your tribe. If you're not Native and you're just tuning in because you enjoy the show, we've got some practical information for you as well. We're speaking about entrepreneurship, things that you can do that can make a difference as far as starting a new business, actually taking advantage of the very, well, tumultuous times we're in, looking at those as opportunities rather than liabilities. My guest is Dr. John Schufelt. John, it's great to have you with us on today's edition of the broadcast. David, thank you so much. I'm really honored honored to be involved and uh, honored to share with your audience. John, a lot of folks uh, know the name of John Schufelt. You're, of course, a physician, but you're much more than that. I understand you also have a law degree, uh, an MBA, and you're the uh, CEO and founder of a group called Tribal Health. Tell us a little bit about that very diverse background. Well, so I'm I'm probably a uh, lifelong overcompensator, but I do believe in lifelong learning. So I try to go back to kind of formal education every five to 10 years. Because I always find something that I think I probably should have known and didn't. And so I always smile at the end of these opportunities where I said, how did I not know that before? And oftentimes those lead to a new business venture. And so I've really enjoyed continuing my educational process. Well, you are known by many people as an author as well. You're the author of one of the recently released Forbes books called Entrepreneur prescription or rx the physician's guide to starting a business and uh, this is not something you just went to the library and researched you've got some hands-on experience with this right so i'm uh, i'm not young anymore and uh i've been in you know kind of professional entrepreneurial endeavors for north of 30 years now and have about over the time 20 companies that i've started had about nine exits um from those companies in sales. Some of them were, of course, I failed miserably, but were entertaining and educational. So I did do some research on the book, but some of it's, a lot of it just with my own personal experience and what I've learned along the way. And I think, uh, of course, to my listenership, I mean, that's the most powerful when we've got someone who's really been out there in the field talking us through some practical things. And of course, although your target audience was physicians for that book, I know it's got a wealth of information that can help people regardless of what their background is. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about how someone goes from being a physician to saying, I want to start my own business. And we want to get especially to the story behind uh, tribal health. So every time, so I, first off, I, I love being a physician. I still practice emergency medicine. I practice it in indigenous country and I practice it in inner cities and, and I love it. It's the thing I was born to do. Um, you know, God put me on earth to practice medicine. I firmly believe that I've wanted to do it since I was five years old. And I say to everybody, most days I do it for free. Some days you couldn't pay me enough to do it. Like when I had three pediatric drownings that all came in one after another. Whoa. So it's, but it's been literally the blessing of my life. But what it's also done is it's opened doors and the doors that it's open are looking at 
things that I think need a solution. So pretty much every entrepreneurial venture that I've done, other than starting hot dog stands, I saw a problem and thought, there's got to be a solution out here for this. And then I would look for a solution. And then I wouldn't find one. I wouldn't find one that made sense to me. So I thought, all right, well, if no one's going to do this, um, it might as well be me trying to fix it. And so I always looked for opportunities to fix a problem that I saw. Sometimes they were imagined problems. Sometimes they were real problems. But I always wanted to try to solve an issue. And then as I got more sophisticated, as time went on, I really looked for issues to solve. There were kind of these big, huge issues in, in healthcare, for example. And is there a better, less expensive, more transparent, better health equality, more kind, caring, and compassion solution? And I tried to focus on those sort of opportunities in my last probably 20 years. This is really exciting to me as a physician as well, John. Uh, I also have spent a lot of my life working with underserved populations. And typically what I hear from my patients is, you know, people don't care. Uh, they're not treating us well. And especially when someone is disadvantaged, it's uh, easy for providers to feel somewhat privileged. And I really appreciate that emphasis that you've been bringing to your work and to the entities that you've set up. Tell us a little bit about tribal health. I mean, it's a pretty generic name. I mean, a lot of tribes that are listening right now, I mean, maybe a tribal council person, maybe someone in a tribal health department, they say, well, tribal health, I mean, that's what we call our health services on the reservation here. But tribal health is actually, is it an emergency medicine uh, service? Tell us a little bit about that organization. Well, it started out as an emergency medicine management and staffing company. So just by way of background, I'm a emergency medicine physician and done medical direction and chief medical officer and all these different things involving you know taking care of patients but i was very blessed to be asked to be the chief medical officer for a 638 hospital that was that was in san carlos arizona the san carlos apache tribe which remains uh incredibly near and dear to my heart and when i was up there even though i worked in inner cities for my pretty much whole professional life i was appalled at the care that was being delivered to folks 90 miles from Phoenix. And I thought, this is a, an incredibly deserving population. How is it possible in the United States that we are not taking better care of our indigenous brothers and sisters? That's really how it started. And I always tell the story. There's a gentleman who came in and he wasn't breathing well and ended up having to intubate him, which is, as you know, put him on a ventilator, put a breathing tube down him. Mm -hmm. And he was pretty sick. And we had to fly him into Phoenix and I sent him to folks that I worked with at uh, inner city tertiary care center here. And when he got better and came back on the reservations, I was kind of teasing him and saying, wait, what, what happened to you? I, I know you had sleep apnea, you know, uh, do you need a new machine? And he's like, no. He said, well, are you wearing it properly? Cause can, I can help you. I mean, let's, let's figure this out. Cause we can't, we don't want to get here again. You were really sick. He goes, no, I think I know how to wear it. I, I think I know how to use it. I go, well, well, what happened then? He goes, well, I don't have electricity. Wow. And that was my, I literally get chills when I tell a story because that was my slap in the face, wake up call to saying, this has to be, it has to be better. It has to, I have to do something. I always call it the last third of my career. I have to do something for these incredibly deserving people. And, and that was really the start of tribal health, seeing if I can make a difference in tribal lands. So right now, tribal health is about is on about 30 different reservations. I've flown all over the country. 
on this what's called the critical care response team, helping travel facilities manage COVID patients and other critically ill patients because they couldn't transfer them out because there's no place to transfer them to. Mm. So I've really had the opportunity to go around and look at different institutions, both 638 and IHS run, and try to make a difference. And literally, out of all the things I've done in medicine, this is by a tenfold magnitude, the best thing I've ever done, the most fun I've ever had, and hopefully the most impact I've ever made. Tremendous. Well, thank you so much for the difference that you've been making. And for those who are listening in, they say, oh, you know, Dr. John, he's on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Good to hear his voice. Uh, Like you mentioned, there's a number of folks throughout Indian country who know your name and they've worked with you. But for those who are listening in, they're saying, well, you know, we've got a great tribal health program. Others might be saying, you know, there's ways that we could uh, spruce things up. But it sounds like if you're talking about things like infrastructure and electricity, you're looking at more than just delivering medical services. Am I hearing that correctly? Um, you are hearing it correctly. And in the example that I used was more, I think, my awakening, for lack of a better way to say this, to the needs of fellow fellow citizens, fellow countrymen, fellow, you know, I call my brothers and sisters. And when I speak on the medical side of it, it's just, you know, being in practice in inner city medicine, I've got this thing called the Six Sigma Black Belt, which is process improvement. I just, for most of the places that I've been to, and believe me, I am no savior by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm certainly no genius, but I do, after 30 years, know how emergency departments should run and know how outpatient clinics should run. And so I sometimes can lend a ear or a hand or some ideas to help make clinics more efficient and emergency departments more efficient. And, you know, with efficiency brings, you can see more patients. Patients don't wait as long. They don't hesitate coming in because they'll be seen quickly and compassionately. So those are the differences that I try to make. And again, it's not rocket science and I'm no, I, I'm no sage, but but I do have gray hair and I've been around for a while and I've already made every mistake in the book. And so I'm trying to help folks not make the same mistakes I did in my 30 years. So John, if someone's trying to connect with you, they say, you know, I think I'd like to see what John Schufelt and Tribal Health could do for our tribe. Is there an easy way to get in connection with you? Yeah, by all means. So my email address is just jshufelt, it's S-H-U-F-E-L-D-T, at Tribal Health dot com. And I'm one of those people who responds to emails and calls people back. And like I said, my goal is to be of service. If I can help, whether it's just pointing somebody in direction, count me in. That's what I literally live for. So what I've got here is your first initial J for John, then Schufelt, S-H-U-F-E-L-D-T, at tribalhealth.com, correct? Correct. Perfect. That's great. So I appreciate you giving that information out, but we want to build beyond what you're doing with tribal health to talk about this broader subject, because you've really taken an interest in helping people, whether they're professionals or not, to start their own businesses. Tell us uh, what inspired you to write a book. So I've, I've written, uh, I've written about 12 of them. And, you know, they're books on self-improvement. The first one was called Ingredients of Outliers, because I I love to read and I, you know, I didn't have a lot of mentors growing up and I always use books as my mentors and I'd, and I'd read about people and then I'd occasionally meet some people and say, wow, they are really amazing. What qualities do they have? 
that I would like to aspire towards. And so I cataloged about 10 qualities and they're, you know, the qualities when you meet somebody think, wow, that person has unbelievable humility. They are unbelievably compassionate or kind, or they've got a great sense of humor. And so I cataloged those and those are, I call them ingredients of outliers, people who really stood out and not everybody in the book had all 10 qualities, but I thought if I'm going to aspire to some qualities, these are the ones I want to aspire towards. So that was my start of, you know, authorship. And as I kind of went down my path on leadership and self-leadership and entrepreneurism, I ended up doing a book. My last book was called Entrepreneurs Rx, as you mentioned, which was, and it's not really for physicians necessarily, it's for anybody who wants to start a business. And the first thing I say right in the introduction is starting a business is hard and it's not for the faint of heart. And I tell some stories about triple mortgaging our house and, and you know, working what seemed like days and nights to do this. And at the end of the day, what I learned is it's, it's often the journey and not the destination where you find the most fun and learn the most things like gratitude. Um, but it's also the fun things you do along the way, the people you meet, the lessons you learn. And the fact that I always tell people this, and I believe it is if I can do it, anybody can do it. I mean, I barely passed high school and I started out in college not doing all that well either until I got my feet under me. And it's not rocket science. It's just really about grit and resilience and having an idea that's as a, that is a solution where there's an opportunity um, to help or to make a difference. And you know, when you look at, if there's any group in the US, in Canada, that's resilient, it's Native Americans. Mm -hmm. They are the definition of resiliency more than anybody I've ever met. I appreciate that, uh, that identification really. And I know a lot of my listeners are, are just nodding their heads or uh, saying even more than that. And we appreciate you coming on the show and really being willing to offer us some practical points for those who are tuning in today, how you can start your own business, maybe some other insights if you're a tribal entity, if you're looking at a, a new venture. John is going to be talking us through some things that I think are really powerful. I know you've got a lot of other things that you're going to be sharing besides just things that relate to that book. We do have to step away just for a couple of minutes. I'm Dr. David DeRose, my guest, Dr. John Schufelt. We're going to be coming back with more on today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Don't go away. More right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I am Dr. David DeRose. We are speaking about things that can make a difference for your tribe, for you individually, personally. We're especially looking at the opportunities that exist today to start your own business. With me is author, physician, lawyer, Dr. John Schufelt. John, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. It's really an honor to be on. So, John, kind of walk us through. I mean, you've given us this first point. If somebody's uh, listening today and they say, I've always wanted to start a business, maybe they just lost their job, or maybe they're saying, hey, this job isn't what I signed up for. Things have really changed over the last year or two. I want to do something on my own. You gave us a message in the first segment. You said, this is not necessarily going to be easy. This is going to be a challenge. Be ready for some hard work. But other than that, what kind of things do you say to someone who's even considering starting up a new business? Well, I'd say, you know, first back up a sec. You know, when we talked about it's it's not easy, and, and that's a little bit something to dwell on because you have to get your self and your family prepared for it because it generally takes long hours but here's the here's the upside you want it to be hard you want to struggle because if, if it was easy everyone could do it anyone could do it so you want it to be something that's that's difficult because otherwise it would already be done when you're trying to identify a problem that a lot of people experience and that they experience repeatedly and if it's an expensive problem, even better, because one, you can charge more for it, but also there's a barrier to entry for other people. So I'll give you an example. In 2010, I started a virtual medical business called MeMD. Now, you know, today, virtual medical, you know, they're, they're a dime a dozen, but in 2010, there really weren't any. But I thought, okay, what's the problem? Well, the problem is if it's the middle of the night or if you can't get in to see your provider, wouldn't it be cool to get online and use a camera and make it HIPAA compliant 
and be seen by a provider and have a prescription if you need it sent to the pharmacy. Well, everybody thought that was completely crazy in 2010, but in my mind, this was where healthcare was going. Mm-hmm. So I tried it. It was a problem that a lot of people experienced. They experienced it repeatedly. And there were some costs to try to figure it out because you know you had to build the infrastructure and the website and all those sorts of things. Well, you know, fast forward about five years, it was it's, it took off very slowly, but it finally took off. And then when COVID hit, boom, now everybody needs it. Everybody needs it repeatedly. And it was expensive to solve. So I had about a 10 year head start, nine year head start on, on folks. We recently sold that company to, to Walmart in June of the, this year. And I give you that example only because it's hard to find the right opportunity or the right, see the right problem. And I'll give you another example. It didn't work. So back about 2012, I thought, all right, well, if you had to have a surgical procedure, for example, you wanted to be done by someone who's board certified. You wanted to be done close to home, hopefully on your time frame, not theirs. And you wanted to get a good price because if you didn't have insurance or if you had a high deductible price matters. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could do a reverse auction for this? If I could say, look, I need a, my gallbladder out. It's not an emergency, but I need it out in the next couple months. Uh, I'm going to send this out there and you surgeons and surgery centers bid on it. You know, who wants my gallbladder going once, going twice. Hmm. So we started that business. And I thought this is a cool business. I, this business has some legs, but the problem was it was probably too early. In other words, people weren't quite ready for that yet. Number two is I probably didn't do it right. There's probably a lot of things I could have done better. And number three, there were some laws in place generally from uh, CMS that made it difficult that made physicians apprehensive about doing it. Today, mm-hmm. other businesses are out there doing it and it's more mainstream, but you know, 10 years ago, nine years ago, it wasn't at all. And so I give you that example, say when you identify a problem, make sure that it's not so far outside of reality that people actually like the idea. Now, if you go back to other things people started, like Facebook, for example, I mean, now it's ubiquitous. When it started, people thought, oh, this is kind of weird, posting personal stuff on the internet. And so you can kind of see it's good to be early, but sometimes not good to be too early. And I've been early in some and, and way too early in others. So I think that's the first thing to look at. What problems can you solve? Are they needed by a lot of people? Are they expensive to solve? And do those people need them repeatedly? So first off, find the right problem. I really like this. So, you know, innovation seems to be at the heart of a lot of the things that you've done. But I know a lot of folks, they may start a business just because they feel they can do something better. But often that involves innovation as well. It may not be a new concept, but they're just saying, hey, I'm tired of how these people do this. I think I can do it much better. Isn't that often a motivation for someone to start their own business? You nailed it. That's exactly perfect. So there's a, there's a guy named Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel was an early Facebook um, investor. He's a Stanford-trained attorney, very bright guy. He wrote a book called Zero to One. And Zero to One is, as you said, something brand new, not been done before. No one's thought about it. You're going from zero to one. But what a lot of people do, and what I've done as well, is go from one to N. And one to N is, look, there's someone else out there um, who's opened a restaurant. There's someone else out there who's who started a, a car washing service. But you know what? Not in my area. Or, yeah, there's one in my area, but, you know, I could do a lot better than that guy or that woman's doing. So I'm going to start a business that way. 
or a restaurant or an art studio and all sorts of things are one to end that are incredibly successful. Um, I tend to just find things that are more zero to one ish. And I, I don't know why one end to end one to end is always a lot easier in some respects, but zero to one for me is at least more exciting, but you're dead right. So let's talk a little bit more directly to folks in Indian country. You're involved. You're, you're out there. You're traveling. You're working with uh, First Nation peoples. I think there are a lot of resources in Indian country, and I'm sure you could talk with any tribal leader would tell you the same thing, a lot of untapped resources. And I'm thinking, you know, human capital. I'm thinking the, the abilities of people. As you travel around, do you see some opportunities, maybe for a tribal entity, maybe for an individual to say, I mean, here's some opportunities that I see in Indian country or for Native Americans where you could really take some of your traditional values, some of your uh, backgrounds, some of your cultural values. It could make a difference in uh, certain markets. Have you thought about that at all? You know, I have, and it goes back to First Nation people are resilient more than anybody else I've ever met. And so all of a sudden you've checked that box. Number two, in many areas that I've traveled to, there's not a lot of competition because there's no one out there who's had the opportunity or the wherewithal or the time or the just intent to start a business. So I think there's a ton of opportunity in a ton of different fields. And it can be something as small as, as basically bringing meals to people's homes or providing in-home caregivers to or staffing different um, businesses out there. I mean, I, I can think of on and on and on, but folks who live in Indian country, I think can simply look around and say, you know, I was down in Phoenix once and they had X. And I don't see X up here, but wouldn't it be cool to have X? And maybe that's buying a franchise. I mean, maybe it's buying a food franchise or a staffing franchise or a home care franchise. Because if you buy a franchise, someone else has already done a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And, and you're really just basically bringing your expertise and knowledge and of the area and of the people um, to put in play in somebody else's playbook, which is, which is great. I've looked at a lot of different franchises over the years. Now, one of the downsides is, you know, some franchises are kind of expensive, but not mm -hmm. all of them are. Many of them are pretty inexpensive and you kind of pay as you go. So I do think there's a lot of opportunity for First Nation people, given their resilience and ingenuity and creativity, to just rock this. These are such great points, John. And uh, I know you've got a wealth of materials, too, on your website. Tell us a little bit about what we could find there. Well, it's, you know, the website, it's, the website is John Schufelt, MD. And, you know, I have, pod, I have podcasts where I talk to entrepreneurs. I have the books and I have a blog. And like I said, if, I'm, if people reach out, I'm happy to connect with them you know, if for just an ear or to point him in a direction. But in my heart of hearts, I believe that First Nation people have an unfair advantage in things like starting a business because you've had to be, you've already have the building blocks in place given everything you've already lived through to take off and run with this uh, and be very successful. And, you know, one of my perspective is, I listen, I failed a ton. And every time I failed, and I mean, every, and I've had some big failures, you know, multi-million dollar failures, but every failure I've had, provided I've kept the right perspective 
kept my humility, which wasn't hard to keep uh, after failing, it's always worked out better every time. And every time I've said, thank God I failed, because had I not failed, this opportunity would not have presented itself when it did. So having that perspective for me has really helped me. And, you know, and they're like, you know, they hit a bump in the road and it just knocks them right on the rear end. That's not First Nation people, as we all know. And those people who get up, brush themselves off and keep running. But you got it. You can do this. This is exciting messaging. And I think it's so exciting, John, because, you know, a lot of people shy away from trying something again, starting something up if they failed the first time. Thank you really for uh, empowering those of us who may have taken some steps, whether it might have been at a tribal level, maybe an individual or family level, and things didn't work out. Look at that as a learning experience and build on that. We want to actually build on that concept. When we come back, we do have to step away briefly. American Indian and Alaskan Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at aianl. It's so critical because if you want to go to his website, it's We've got more coming up in our second half of the show. Stay tuned. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of the broadcast. Dr. David DeRose with Dr. John Schufelt. John is the author of Entrepreneur Rx, The Physician's Guide to Starting a Business. But if you've been with us from the top of the hour, you realize he's talking to a whole lot more than just physicians. John, as we stepped away from the uh, interview prior to uh, our last announcements there, we were speaking about this really important message about not letting your past define you, especially when that past involved challenges or, quote, what people have labeled as failure. I really resonated with what you were telling us about your academic career because, you know, people hear physician, they hear lawyer, they hear master's business administration. They're saying, I mean, this guy obviously was some kind of stellar student. But you alluded to the fact that you struggled academically. Did I hear that right? Uh, yeah, completely, yeah, completely struggled. So how did you turn that around? I believed in myself. 
it was literally a light switch moment for me because I literally barely got out of grade school. I barely got out of high school. I mean, I was in the way bottom half of the high school class. How I got into college, I don't know. Um, and by about second semester, all of a sudden I did well enough in a class that I, all of a sudden I thought, maybe this, maybe I can do this. Maybe this just takes more work. And maybe if I believe I can do it, I can do it. And it was a light switch moment for me. And I've never looked back and it's not like I've crushed it ever since. I definitely have to work hard, but you know, I started life in an orphanage and never really had that. And you know, my parents, God bless them, they were, they did everything they knew how to do, but it was never, John, you've got this. It was more like, John, you'll never mount to much. Wow. And so I, you know, part of me is probably trying to prove them wrong, but part of me was trying to prove it to myself. I love the story. So many of us have heard that narrative, and whether we've heard it individually, whether we've heard it culturally because of our race, because of where we grew up, I'll tell you, though, really to hear your story and to say, look, don't let the past define you. Learn from those mistakes. Learn from the challenges. Keep moving forward. This is powerful stuff, and I know you've written about some of these keys to success, whether it's starting a business or just in life. Tell us a little bit more about that first book you wrote, Ingredients of Outliers. So I, as I mentioned, I started cataloging traits of people that I found to be incredible um, or remarkable. And I started writing them down. And then I started thinking, how do you define this? What makes these people so unique? So the first one I thought of was humility. And everybody that I've met who really, truly is an outlier, really is just this rock star to a person are very humble. They are people who do not feel the need to brag about themselves. They do not feel the need to show you everything they've done or learned. Um, they're just so comfortable in their own skin. That's all that matters to them. And, and that for me, that was the first chapter of my book. It's, the next one was fail fast. We talked about this one a little bit because if you fail fast, you learn along the way, you, you know, it's the old adage, fall down seven, get up eight. As long as you keep getting up and keep learning, you're you're still moving forward. You know, the next two are persistence and preparation. You know, First Nation people are the definition of persistence and and have prepared for generations and generations. So you guys have got this. It's the next one is just how to communicate. And it's kind of a lost art these days when everybody has their head down and is texting the whole time. But just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation like we're doing with you're looking somebody in, in the eye, you mean what you say and, and say what you mean. The next one is really important and that's called imperturbability or staying calm. I fly all over the country and I've had some scary situations while I was flying, including a plane crash. And I wasn't the pilot on that one, but it was a little scary. And then taking care of patients who are critically ill or dying. I always wanted to be the calmest person in the room. And I grew up getting yelled and screamed at and it didn't work. And so I always thought, okay, I'm never going to raise my voice. No matter how dire the situation is, I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm going to be the calmest person in the room. So there's a lot of stories and quotes about imperturbability. Next one is risk tolerance. And I think anything that's worth doing is going to require some degree of risk tolerance. If you're going to be an outlier, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to change the world, it's going to take some risk tolerance. The next one is kindness, and this is probably really should be the first one. 
you know, the people that I find that are the people that I want to be around, that I learn from the most, are people who are just kind. They pay it forward. And as I mentioned earlier, I didn't really have a mentor growing up, and that was my own fault. I didn't go out and seek anybody out. But I've always now wanted to be a mentor to others. And so I have a lot of kids. And I've started up in San Carlos, I started a health careers club. And these kids would come in and they were amazing and they were a lot of them. And so I thought, you know, for a lot of these folks, no one showed them that, hey, this is a cool opportunity for you. And I wanted to ignite a curiosity in them that there's a world in healthcare that they may not have had the opportunity to explore yet. And it's out there and I'm happy to help them. The next one's learning. And we talked about this a lot. I believe in lifelong learning, whether it's formal or informal. So my best learning has come from books. I've read about how other people did and didn't do it. And I've tried to emulate them, those that are worth emulating. Next to our optimism and perspective, I'm a born optimist. And because as I mentioned, every time I failed, if I remain optimistic and keep a good perspective about it, it always, always, always works out better. And I always am so thankful that I failed because had I not failed, I wouldn't be where I am. The next one I think is something that First Nation folks have in spades and that's called being indefatigable. Basically you have a lot of energy and you can keep pushing on where other people may quit. And I've always found at least for myself, when I think I'm at the end, I'm probably only about 40%. And so you read these stories about people who have done amazing things and they did not have more training or better bodies or physiques or anything. They just said, you know what, I'm going to keep pushing on. And I always want those people who learn, you're going to have to kill me to make me quit. And so I've tried to become indefatigable. And then the next one and the last one we can go over but is integrity. And it's just doing the right thing, doing the right thing, saying what you're going to do, do what you're going to say, do what you say. And I call it the priceless commodity because it, in fact, is something that, that if you treat people with integrity, things ultimately always work out for the better. Wow, that is quite an extensive list of things. And I can see just by listening, some of these things just so vital. And I, I know we could say, hey, they're all vital. That's why you put them into these qualities. But I know one of them that seems to sometimes conflict with some of the others. That's just one of optimism. I know a lot of folks, uh, they may look at their situation and they may say, hey, I'm not in a position where I can do this. It's hard to cultivate optimism. Do you have actually some pointers that you've used, whether as a mentor or in your writing, to try to help someone who may say, hey, I I tend to be risk averse. I tend not to be optimistic. Is there anything a person like that can do to cultivate this quality? Well, on the risk side, you know, part of this is emergency medicine background. And I would say, if no one's dying, how bad can it be? And so I've really come to realize that that's actually probably true. Because if you have the right perspective, if you remain optimistic, you know, you can get knocked down a few times and still and still get up. In fact, you can get knocked down a lot. And there are people that I treat and, and stories that I've read, like the story of Louis Zamperini, you know, out in a boat in World War II for 45 days with nothing to eat or drink and catching live birds and fish, live fish and eating them and remaining positive the whole time. Or Viktor Frankl, who loses his whole family in Auschwitz in a concentration camp. 
and can remain optimistic. And also, boy, if these two can do it, I can do anything mm. because they've had it a hundred times worse than I've had it. What's what's there to complain about? And as far as you know, optimism goes, I think you may be born with some degree of that, and, and maybe I am. But I've always found that life is so much easier if you can, despite what you're facing, say, okay, the sun will be up tomorrow, tomorrow's a new day, and I've had a new chance for a new beginning every day. How I choose to do this is what's going to define my future. And so even in some dark moments when, you know, I'm going to lose my house and the bank's throwing me out and all those things I've managed through some challenges to remain as optimistic as I could. And it frankly worked. And I'll tell you a quick story. After one of these bank incidents where the, they were going to come and, you know, repossess everything. And I just put my head down and gritted through it. I talked to the guy a year later or so after I came out the other end. And I said, how come you didn't do that? How come you didn't come and take it all away? Because he goes, well, I never learned. I never heard defeat in your voice. You were always optimistic. Because had I heard defeat in your voice, I would have pulled the plug immediately on you because then I knew you would have quit. But I just knew talking to you, you were not going to quit. You were optimistic. And that really stuck with me. That's crazy. So you're actually saying the entity that gave you the loan that could have repossessed your home, whatever, uh, foreclosed on your mortgage, basically they felt that you were a good investment because of your optimism. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. He said, look, you know, when I told you all this, you had, you know, I gave it 30 days and they ended up delaying it because I continued to press forward and ultimately survived. But he said, the second I would have heard defeat in your voice, I would have had to pull the plug because you would have given up and all would have blown up and we wouldn't have gotten any money back. So the fact that you were still head down, optimistic, looking for opportunities, it, it kept us in the game. And I've seen it, you know, with help with people's health as well. There are people who live with these medical conditions and like, how are you still alive? How are you still smiling? And they're like, you know, what other choice do I have? It's so, so life's so much easier to be this way than to be super negative. And I've just seen it repeatedly, both in healthcare and in business and in life. If you're optimistic, life is so much easier. These are really important messages, and I appreciate you giving us this really solid foundation because one of the things we do want to circle back around to is this latest book, Entrepreneur Rx, The Physician's Guide to Starting a Business. And like we've mentioned a number of times, it's not just for doctors. Tell us a little bit um, more, John, about what someone might find in that book just in a short, succinct way, and then we can build on it when we come back in our next segment. I think the short, succinct way is it's, you know, it's business school 101. It's what you need to learn to start a business. And there's a lot more than it's not in the book, but it's the tools to help you get started. I so appreciate what you're uh, pulling together, what you're doing for my listeners. So, John, for those who are trying to really tap into your resources, they've heard you mention the website Maybe they're driving. They're saying, I don't know if I'm going to remember how to spell this guy's name. Walk us through again how someone can get to your website. I'm one of those people probably way too much on Google, but it's just John Schufelt, and it'll get you to the website and to everything else you probably didn't even want to know about me. 
Okay, so I've got John, J-O-H-N, Schufelt, S-H-U-F-E-L-D-T, and then M-D, right, dot com? Correct. That's my website. Okay, John Schufelt, M-D, dot com. We're going to be back with some uh, final insights in our last segment from Dr. Schufelt. He's going to be giving you some things that you don't want to miss. So stay with us. I'm Dr. David DeRose. More right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for the final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose with Dr. John Schufelt. Dr. Schufelt has been walking us through some really life-changing points from some of his books. He's a Forbes Books author of the recently released Entrepreneur Rx, The Physician's Guide to Starting a Business. But he's been helping us uh, really gain insights that can help any of us to really open up a new shop, if you will, to put it uh, very graphically. I know we're talking about a lot more than, than shops and retail. But, uh, John, a lot of folks who've been tuning in today, no doubt, as 
they've been listening to you. You've been talking about these qualities. I, I can imagine a lot of people saying, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm checking these boxes off. Uh, you know, I think I can fail fast. I think I can, uh, you know, take on some risk. Uh, people tell me I'm a kind person. So if someone's listening, they're, they're checking these boxes and they're saying, you know, maybe there is a, is a space for me to, uh, to start a business and, and make a difference. What do you tell a person like that if they really don't know where to even begin? They like the idea of starting a business, but, I mean, how do I start, they're asking. I mean, I think the, the easiest way to do it is to, I always call it putting on a new pair of glasses. And there are times when I've all of a sudden, and this will you know, be a little bit embarrassing, but it's often in the shower. I don't know why. But I'll be in the shower and all of a sudden something will hit me. I'm like, how have I missed this before? Because this is a no-brainer. Now, some of them were real brainers and they were really stupid. But some of them are like, wow, I missed this my entire life. And it's staring me right in the face. Maybe I should think about X. And I've had a lot of those X moments where it is just something I've read in a book. And oftentimes it's also reading in a book. So I'll give you an example. It's a book I read that it was called Blink, Malcolm Gladwell. And in the, it's a great book. And it's things we know without knowing. Uh, and in this book, they talked about surgeons and how some surgeons were sued more for malpractice than others. And they went to a group of college students and they said, listen to the surgeon talk to their patient about what's called informed consent. And I know you know that, what that is, but it's based about the risk and benefits of what they're going to do. And they washed out all the words and all you could hear was the inflection of their voice. Now we've all heard people talk to us like this and then they called it condescending. It's the mm. surgeons who were condescending to their patients. These students listening to just their voice inflection could pick out which surgeons had been sued more than twice. It was an amazing, it was just an amazing thing. It was in the annals of surgery, as I recall. But I read about it in Blink. And I thought, wow, there's a business opportunity here. So I went back and looked. And it's, as it turns out, women, pay le- women doctors pay less than med mal insurance, medical malpractice insurance than male doctors. Okay, why is that? Well, it's probably obvious. Better communicators, oftentimes, they're more compassionate, oftentimes, and they, they demonstrate more empathy. Well, what if you're a male physician who has those characteristics? Should you too be able to pay less insurance? So mm. we wrote a test to, to look for those qualities in male physicians. We called it MSTAR. So if a male physician took this test, and we verified it and validated it, but if a male physician took this test, scored well on it, the malpractice insurer charged them about 30% less for malpractice than they did a male counterpart who took it and didn't pass. But that idea simply came out of literally reading one paragraph in a book, which is one of the reasons why I love to read because it gives me ideas about possible opportunities. But I think for listeners, if you just metaphorically put on this different pair of glasses and look for opportunities out there, they are all around you. I promise you they're all around you. You just need to have that new pair of glasses on, those new spectacles, which will allow you to see things that you may have missed in the past. John, I especially appreciate a couple of aspects of what you're sharing. One, I hear you saying, you know, you need some time for reflection. And whether that's uh, spending a little extra time in the shower, if, uh, you know, you can handle the water bills, or if you have running water, you know, some of our native listeners uh, don't have that privilege in some parts of the country. Or it's just taking some time away from just the treadmill, the rat race, whatever analogy you want to use, because that's a lot of time where that creative thinking comes. I'll tell you, as a physician who's advocated 
physical activity for years and years. I know for me, one of the times that I often gain insights is when I'm out walking or running or doing some uh, useful work uh, on property. That gives me just a, an opportunity to step away from the, the hustle bustle and, and really things pop into your head. And great message about learning from experts in the form of books. You're one of those people who's putting yourself out there. If I want to learn a little bit more about the books that you've got, is the website the best place to go? Uh, the website is the best place to go. And I also believe I have on there, and if I don't, I'll add it, a book list of books I've read and kind of in categories of what they've meant to me. Um, and there's, I will just warn people, there's a few of them. So um, just be prepared for a list. That's great. So those of you that are still struggling with the spelling, I mean, your name, last name, John, is pretty easy. I mean, people can think, think shoe and felt. You helped me out with that uh, before we did the interview. But it's spelled S-H-U-F-E-L-D-T. So johnshufeltmd.com, that's the website. John, one of the other things that I noticed as you were going through those ingredients of outliers, I noticed a number of them had to do with what some people would label humanistic qualities, things like humility, things like kindness, things like integrity. And I remember reading a medical author not all that long ago, and he was speaking about how some of these humanistic qualities have been lost sight of. Speak to us both from your perspective as a physician and as a, a fellow who's started a number of successful businesses. Why are these humanistic qualities so vital? Because I think at the end of the day, they are what define us as individuals and neighbors and members of a community. And so if you can work on those individual qualities, like the ones we went through and improve them, I think you'll just A, be a better parent to your children, a better child to your parents, and a better community member. And they're kind of a they're they're kind of all a no lose situation. You know, one that seems to uh, at least in many circles to be undervalued today. I guess we could have highlighted all three of them, but this aspect of integrity. It seems like the mindset today is that no one is honest. Everyone's twisting the truth, and if I'm going to get ahead. I need to do that as well. Why do you think that's such a dangerous perspective for someone to cultivate? Well, I think it's death by a thousand cuts. And I think it's one of those things that you start off with some small things that you convince yourself of, oh, you know, it's just a small thing. Oh, it's a little white lie. And then all of a sudden you're Bernie Madoff, the guy who built, you know, hundreds of people out of millions and millions of dollars. And I think it always starts with the small stuff. And so if you can just focus on the small things and every morning, you know, one of the things I try to do is every night before I go to bed, I say, review my day. What could I have done better? What should I congratulate myself on? And what will change tomorrow if faced with the same opportunities? You know, I try to keep myself honest that way. And so I'm on this constant path of evolution as opposed to, you know, devolution, which I'm going the wrong way. But I do think integrity, if you lose it, it always, always, always comes back to bite you. You know, the other virtue, if you will, that you mentioned, humility that we've touched on, it seems like that in some circles is also a scarce commodity. It seems like more and more people in leadership have become, uh, well, I mean, 
proud, blowing their own horn, whatever you want to use. And uh, I know we have a very rancorous political world. It doesn't seem like I'm hearing too many political candidates say, you know, vote for me, I'm the most humble. What do you think's going on with all that? And what are we losing in society as a result? Well, I mean, every person that I can think of who is anything but humble is ultimately incredibly insecure because they mm. feel the need to have to tell you about how great they are. So I'll tell you a funny story. I, I have this old warplane that I've had for 20 years and I was flying a gentleman who was an Air Force pilot and he, I'm flying him down to see his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law was a Thunderbird, you know, those really cool guys who do all the air show stuff like the Blue Angels. Mm-hmm. Now this guy's an Air Force pilot as well. Now he's getting in this old 60 year old airplane and I'm telling him about strapping on the parachute and he's nodding and asking me questions. And about three minutes into this, I thought, you know, he is a professional Air Force pilot. He's a fighter pilot. I wonder if he's ever jumped out of a plane. I never have, but I've worn a parachute a lot. And I finally said to him, I go, hey, Matt, he said, you know, have you ever actually jumped out of a plane before? He goes, well, John, if we jump today, it'll be 765. He said, I was on the Air Force skydiving team. And I started laughing. I said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. If we get a problem, I'm following you. But I tell you the story because anytime during this conversation, he could have said, dude, I've jumped 764 times out of an airplane. I was a national skydiving champion. He never said a word. That was humility. That is so great. John, our time has slipped away from us. You've got a lot of great information. I know folks want to connect with you. One more time, how do they do it? Pretty easy. I mean, Google my name or John Schufelt, md.com is my website. It's J-O-H-N. S-H-U-F-E-L-D-T-M-D dot com. John, thanks again so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We do have to run. I'm so glad that each of you joined us for today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. And as always, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. This is Life Talk Radio.